Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here today, that we can fellowship and enjoy uh, the friendships we have within this church. I thank you for your word, that we get a chance to uh, study it, to sit under the teaching of scripture, and to, um, to, to be blessed by your truth. I ask God that as we study 2 Timothy this morning and as Michael preaches uh, in our worship service, that our hearts would be open and attentive, that our minds would be alert and awake, that you would uh, help us to set aside the distractions and the cares and concerns that uh, we all deal with day to day. And Lord, give us um, an eagerness to understand and receive your truth. Lord, be with me. Help me as I teach. Help Michael as he preaches. And I pray that our church uh, would be strengthened today through the ministry of the word and that you would be greatly glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think that we all probably understand uh, the weightiness of last words. I don't know, maybe some of you have uh, had loved ones pass away, or maybe you've considered your own passing. Maybe you've thought about, what am I going to say on my deathbed? What's the one thing I would want to communicate? What would be your last words? Well, among Paul's last words, they are at least among his last written words, are these words from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. He writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Timothy was the last letter written by the Apostle Paul. These are words penned by a man who is in a Roman prison. And we are familiar with Paul being in prison because it seems like almost everything he wrote was from prison. Um, Not everything he wrote, but a lot of it. Um, But you will remember that Paul um, had been once imprisoned in Rome because of the opposition of Jews in Jerusalem. He had gone into the temple. There had been an outrage. They had accused him of profaning the temple, although he hadn't. And so he had been arrested and had appealed to Caesar and so had been sent to Rome. And there, while he was in prison in Rome, he had written several books of the Bible, including Philippians. And if you remember Philippians, uh, what Paul says there, Paul had been optimistic that he was going to be released. In Philippians 1, 24 through 26, um, he says, to remain in the flesh, when he's is more necessary on your account. He's talking about whether he would die or remain. And he seems confident he's going to remain. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says in Philippians, guys, I think it's going to be okay. I'm ready to die but I really think God's going to keep me here because you still need me. You need my ministry. And I'm looking forward to coming and seeing you again face to face. And I think that will be an encouragement to you. And eventually, we believe Paul was released. So that was his first imprisonment. Paul writes the book of 2 Timothy, again from prison in Rome, but it seems to be a second uh, stint in prison in Rome. If you look in chapter 4 in 2 Timothy, verses 14 and 15, He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Um, It seems that this imprisonment in Rome, this, um, this instance in Paul's life, is not because of the opposition of Jews in Jerusalem, 
but because of this man, Alexander the coppersmith in Troas, who apparently was a threat to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus. It's because of this man, Alexander, that Paul has been in prison again. And this time, Paul seems to know that unlike his first imprisonment, this time his release would only come through death. Paul says he's being poured out as a drink offering. And he uses the language of sacrifice in chapter 4, verse 6. You can look there. He tells Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is come. And then he talks about fighting the good fight, finishing the race. That's a little different than his tone in Philippians where he says, guys, I'm sure of this, that I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to remain in the flesh, and I'm going to see you again. This time he says, Timothy, my time has come. The end is here. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. You see, Paul had offered his life as a sacrifice. We see that in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where he encourages others um, as well to join him in, in offering himself as a living sacrifice to God. But now he's ready to die as a sacrifice. So he speaks with finality of finishing the race and having fought the faith, or fought the good fight of faith. And he speaks of his heavenly reward in 2 Timothy, a reward that he expects to receive sooner than later. Paul's hope is not in returning to those he loves. His hope is in entering the glory of heaven. We see this in verse 8. He speaks of the crown of righteousness, which the Lord is going to uh, award to him on that day. And in verse 18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's what he's looking forward to. That's his source of confidence. So Paul is, in a sense, nearing the end. And like many who are on their deathbed, Paul wants to see those that he loves most. If you think about your own passing, don't you want those you love most dearly to be there with you, to see them one last time? That's what Paul wants. He refers to Timothy in this book as his beloved son in the faith. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To Timothy, my beloved child. And Paul longs to see Timothy. Uh, Paul urges Timothy in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, Do your best to come to me soon. Paul loves Timothy. It's his son in the faith. And he says, I want to see you one last time. So this, among all of Paul's letters, is really one of his most personal letters. His concern is to see those he loves. And it's not just a concern for himself. As always, Paul's concern is a laser focus on the mission that God has given him. Paul has a desire for Christ to be magnified and a desire for his gospel to be made known. So Paul's main concern throughout this book, he knows he's coming to the end, He loves Timothy. Timothy is his child in the faith. But Paul's main concern is that the ministry of the gospel continue on after he dies. That is his primary concern. He knows that he's fading from the scene. And his great burden is that the gospel would be proclaimed, that it would be preserved, that it would be protected, that it would be passed on to the next generation. And so that's what he's going to talk about in this book. In writing to Timothy, we see that he wants to encourage Timothy, in particular, to persevere in carrying out this ministry, despite uh, the hardship and opposition that he would have to endure. So the theme, if you were to put it in one word for this book, is faithfulness. The theme is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to the truth. Faithfulness to the work of the ministry. Faithfulness to engage error. Faithfulness to endure persecution. Faithfulness to use his gifts and do the work that God has called him to. That's Paul's theme in writing to Timothy. So because of that, 2 Timothy is really a timeless letter. 
Yes, it was uniquely necessary in that day for Paul writing to this young pastor, Timothy. But really in all times and in all places, this need is ever before us. False teaching is always a threat. There is always the reality of opposition to the truth, opposition to the gospel. There is in each and every generation the necessity of passing on the gospel to those who come after us. In this marathon, Paul has handed the baton, and so has Timothy, and so have many, and we're carrying it right now. And somebody has to pick it up from us to carry the gospel on in the next generation if the Lord tarries. So each and every generation faces the same challenges that Timothy faces. So we have the responsibility today not only to stand fast, but to see that the gospel baton is successfully handed off to those who will come after us. So like 1 Timothy and Titus, this letter is written to a pastor, but 2 Timothy is for all of us. It's imperative that the church today have a sense of what matters, that we have a clear understanding of how our leaders must live and lead and of what the crucial mission before us is. So 2 Timothy is applicable for all of us. We can break 2 Timothy up as far as an outline into four sections, really four points. And the first we find in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and that's faithfulness in the ministry. Faithfulness in the ministry. The charge that Paul gives Timothy to be faithful begins with God's own authority. He says in verse 1, he is an apostle by the will of God. So Paul has authority. He has been commissioned, and now he is going to use that authority to commission Timothy. He appeals to their spiritual heritage in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I serve God as did my ancestors. And he reminds Timothy about his mother and his grandmother. In verse 5, he says, listen, what we are doing is standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us, and we need to continue that ministry on. He appeals to Timothy to follow his own example. Paul has a clear conscience. Even though he's in prison, um, he says that he has a clear conscience. He's not ashamed. He knows why he's there. He's done nothing wrong, and he's been constantly in prayer. And so now he's ready to exhort Timothy Reminding Timothy that Timothy himself has an obligation to do God's will and continue on the legacy of his family and the legacy of the previous generations that have come before him and even the legacy of Paul, Paul's faithfulness to the gospel. So he gives him several direct exhortations here in chapter 1. The first we find in verse 6. He says, For this reason, in light of God's authority and those who have gone before us and even my own example to you, he says, For this reason, I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This first exhortation he gives him is to fan this gift into flame. God's gift to Timothy, his spiritual gifts, the unique abilities he's given Timothy, and the unique calling, the responsibility he's giving Timothy. This is something that Timothy has a responsibility to cultivate, to, to be a good steward of. Uh, I think many of us in, in the athletic realm, we think of, of people who, who had lots of talent coming out of high school or maybe college, but then they never really did anything with that raw talent that they had. They never put in the work. They lacked the focus and the discipline to really maximize the potential that they had. And we understand that in an athletic context, but think about it in terms of ministry. How many people are there out there who have gifts, have potential, but they've been distracted or lazy, or 
just not committed or they've not put in the work to cultivate and fan into flame the gifts that they have. This has the idea that, per, that a flame, if it's not tended, can die out. A campfire can die out if it's not cared for. And that's what he's exhorting Timothy to do. He says, Timothy, if you're going to be faithful, you have to fan your gift into flame. He, he tells him in verse 8, not to be ashamed, but rather to share in suffering. This is the second exhortation. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He says, I know I'm in prison, and some people might say, Paul must be doing something wrong because God keeps allowing him to get stuck in prison. But he says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. He says, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. This is an exhortation. In order to be faithful in ministry, you have to be willing to share in suffering. As we'll see throughout this letter, there's always a cost to serving God and proclaiming the gospel and standing for the truth. There will always be a cost. There will be suffering. And Timothy needs to not be ashamed of that, but rather embrace it, share in it, and take his stand alongside Paul. And if we're going to do that, it's going to require that we be gripped with the message of the gospel itself. So Paul tells him in verses 9 through 10, he reminds him that God is the one who, verse 9, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Listen, if you're going to be willing to share in suffering, you have to be really excited about the gospel message itself. And Paul was. He was gripped by this message. And as he starts talking about it, he's starting to preach. He's talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's why Paul's willing to suffer. It's because he's confident in Christ. And he's confident in God's faithfulness. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been trusted to me. And I think another and perhaps even better translation is, is what Paul has entrusted to God, not just what God has entrusted to him. Paul has placed his full faith in this message of the gospel. And he is willing to suffer and even die for the sake of Christ. And he knows that God will take that faith and will raise Paul up on the last day and grant him a reward. And he's confident in that. This was Paul's experience of being gripped by this truth, suffering for Christ. And he's confident in God and he wants Timothy to share in that. He says, Timothy, I want you to share in this ministry, share in this suffering, and I want you to share my faith in God. You see, faith in the gospel, faith in God is essential to faithfulness. So he calls Timothy to that. Then he tells him in verse 13, yet another exhortation to faithfulness in the ministry. He encourages him. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's referring here this pattern of sound words that's so essential if Timothy's going to be faithful to the ministry. That's the apostles' biblical teaching, their doctrine. You see, truth matters. Part of faithfulness to Christ is being faithful to the truth. He says, follow the pattern of sound words. Similarly, in verse 14, he gives him yet another exhortation. He says that Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He must guard the truth. He has to follow the truth personally. And then he must guard the truth because there's always going to be threats to the truth. 
This following of sound words, the pattern, and guarding of the good deposit is especially important in light of the many who fall away. Paul speaks about this in verse 15, um, 15 through 18, really, about those who have experienced uh, adversity or those who've maybe fallen away because of false teaching. You see, truth is important. Truth is important. And faithfulness matters. This is really picking up one of Paul's closing thoughts in 1 Timothy. If you look back on 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he had said, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That was his final thought in 1 Timothy. And here he picks it up and expands it. He says, Timothy, you've got to be faithful to the truth. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we really find that this is what it means. This is what it looks like to be faithful to the ministry. So you have to use your gifts. You have to be willing to share in suffering. We must follow the pattern of sound words and guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. This is what godly pastors do. And this is what faithful disciples do. This is what healthy churches do. And so it's something we must be willing to do as well. So this is his exhortation to faithfulness in the ministry. In chapter 2, 1 through 13, second point here, we find Paul tells him to be faithful in the face of hardship. Here he picks up on that idea of being willing to share in suffering and expands it. Because being faithful is hard. It's It's hard. And so if we're going to be faithful, he tells him right off the bat it's going to require God's strength. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I, this is interesting. I want to park here just for a second because this is a command that Paul gives Timothy. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So this is a command. We're supposed to pursue this strength. We're supposed to lay hold of this strength, but yet the verb is passive. We are to be strengthened. He doesn't say strengthen yourself. He says be strengthened. You see, only God can grant the grace that gives us strength, the strength that we need. And he will, as we prayerfully seek him and trust him to provide. So this is something only God can do, but we're supposed to pursue it. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And a key aspect of what Paul's, call, uh, Paul's uh, exhortation to Timothy here, as far as ministry, our calling as well, is to see that this gospel message is passed on. So he says in verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this faithfulness to suffer that Timothy's been called to, Timothy has to pass this on to others as well. We're supposed to multiply disciples and especially multiply leaders. Timothy's concern is, is definitely the church at large, but especially to raise up leaders who will follow in his footsteps. Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what Paul's doing with Timothy. He's entrusting to Timothy the truth that can be passed on. And Timothy's supposed to do the same thing. And we are supposed to do this same task today. The lost must be evangelized. The saints must be equipped. And gospel ministers must be raised up. Churches that don't do this will die. Churches who don't evangelize the lost... Who don't, who don't edify and strengthen the, the saints, and who don't raise up healthy, strong, godly leadership will die. 
churches that do it will thrive and survive. There's a lot of churches, even in our own community, who are evaluating what do we need to do to successfully transition into the next generation. And there's a lot of different kinds of things you can do. People try to change the church names and reinvent maybe the worship style or change, you know, introduce some specific programs for young people. And all those can be helpful, but you know what's essential for a church not to just grow old and gray and then eventually die. What's essential is that the truth of the gospel and the work of the ministry be entrusted to the next generation, which means we have to raise up leaders. This is DNA that has to be passed on to leaders and church members, that the gospel is valuable, suffering is worth it, and that the truth is going to be preserved and proclaimed. So we have to have that passed on to the next generation. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, saying this is one thing, and we can talk about this till we're blue in the face, but doing it is another thing. And Paul knows that doing it, this task, is not going to be without suffering. It's going to be hard. That's why he tells them they need God's grace. And that's why he gives them three really amazing examples, these illustrations, metaphors, of what it will look like to do this, to not turn aside simply because we face adversity, but to persevere in seeking to pass this on, because this isn't something you can just do in like, hey, you know, first quarter in 2020, we're going to entrust this to faithful men who can teach others also, and then we'll move on to a different focus. Now, this is a long-term task that is always before us, so look at these metaphors he gives. He says in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. These three metaphors, these famous metaphors, vividly illustrate the cost and the reward of facing hardships, doing the work of the ministry, raising up disciples and new leaders. He first speaks about the faithful soldier, verses three through four, and then the faithful athlete in verse five, and then the faithful farmer in verse six. And I was thinking about it this week. It's really such a fitting metaphor in that day because they would have been familiar with all of these. But you know what? We have soldiers in this church, and we have actual athletes in this church. And we have actual farmers in this very church. We have all three of these represented in our body today. So it's really the perfect illustration. Um, the faithful soldier, who is a man under authority, who has a task before him, and he has to simply do it no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much it costs. What about the athlete? He's got a goal before him. He knows the expectations. He knows the training that's required. He knows the rules he has to play by if he wants to be on the victor's stand at the end. And what about the farmer? He knows the task before him. He knows how long it takes. He knows the daily work that has to be done in order to share in the reward of the crop. All three of these metaphors describe someone who's willing to put in the work, who's willing to spend himself no matter the cost, because he knows the task at hand. And he says that's what the Christian life, and especially Christian ministry, looks like. And Paul reminds us, if we're going to approach our mission this way, we will be greatly helped to remember Jesus, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. He's the perfect illustration of this. Who knows the task at hand, willing to do it no matter the cost, faithful to the end. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. 
We also need good examples in this life. And Paul's a good example. And Paul holds himself out to Timothy. He says, this gospel for which, verse 9, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. And if we're going to do this, we also have to remember that the power we need is ultimately found in the word. Paul says, I am bound. I love verse 9, but the word of God is not bound. He says, listen, Timothy, they can throw me in prison. They can throw you in prison. They can throw all those men you're going to train in prison, but they cannot bind the word. They cannot bind the word. He says, therefore, in verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then he gives this amazing, what looks like a quote of a hymn, or maybe a a creed, a confession of faith. He says, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Ultimately, God is faithful, and that's what Paul grounds everything in. If we are faithful to him, he will be faithful to us. We can be confident of this. But if we deny him, he will also be faithful to judge us because God never compromises his justice. Even if we abandon him and abandon his mission, he's going to do his will and accomplish it one way or another. So we can be confident in in God's faithfulness as we seek to, like soldiers, like athletes, like farmers, do the hard work ahead of us, confident in the ultimate outcome. So there's a third point um, that Paul gets to in this book, starting in verse 14 of chapter 2 and carrying through chapter 4, verse 5, and that's faithfulness in the face of false teaching. Faithfulness in the face of false teaching. Error is always a threat to the gospel. Error is always a threat to the church. And so we have to be faithful even in the face of false teaching. Paul's already told Timothy back in chapter 1 to follow the pattern of sound words and to guard the good deposit. And so if he's going to do that, and if we're going to do that, it means we have to engage false teaching. And we find some helpful instruction here on how to do that. And what's interesting to me in this section is that there's amazing balance here in Paul's teaching that we have to engage in combat, but we must not be combative. That we must argue for the truth, but we must not be argumentative. That we have to correct opponents, but we need to be careful not to get sucked into divisive and unnecessary controversy. So there's a tension almost as to what our spirit and our manner ought to be And yet at the same time, the kind of things we have to be willing to say and the kind of stand we have to be willing to take. So Timothy, as he entrusts the gospel to faithful men who will carry it on, is also to charge them in verse 14. He says, remind them of these things, you know, faithfulness to Christ, be willing to suffer like a soldier, all those things. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. There's more in verse 23. He says, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's interesting. We find this balance here. They are not to quarrel. They are to avoid irreverent babble. They are to avoid foolish, ignorant controversies. They're not to be quarrelsome, but to be kind and gentle. So there's all these exhortations as to their manner, how they are to engage, and even certain things that they shouldn't even mess with. Don't even get sucked into that. Um, as the, the proverb, the modern proverb goes, you know what happens when you um, wrestle with a pig? You both get dirty and the pig likes it. That's what Paul is in a sense saying. It's like, listen, there's some arguments and controversies you shouldn't even get involved in. It's not worth your time. And, and that maybe says something about you, that you like that. And, and you should avoid those kinds of things. But this doesn't mean, on the flip side, that false teaching is not a serious threat. Instead, Paul says that their opponents should be instructed with the truth. So he's not saying, hey, you know what, potato, potato, let's all just get along to each their own. You know, you have your interpretation, I have mine. No, he says that they should correct opponents of the truth, yet do it with gentleness. They're to be instructed. And Paul even drops names. He names names and says, here's some of the, pe- the kinds of people I'm talking about. He's willing to do that. So like Paul, Timothy must fight the good fight, but how he does that matters. How he does that matters. Some people today are unwilling to correct error or to refute false teaching or to even name the names of people who are preaching something that is false. On the flip side, there's other people that are very eager to do that. And in fact, it's the only thing they want to do. And they tend to do it in a wrong way. Not with gentleness. Not with patience. Not being kind. Rather, they are quarrelsome, and they get sucked into all these controversies. They get into debates over words that, you know, and those kinds of, like, nitpicky things that ultimately do not even matter, and it's unfruitful and distracting. God's will, as is made clear here in this book, is that we would exercise discernment as far as picking the right battles, something that's very, very important. We have to pick our battles wisely. It is unwise to refuse to fight certain enemies. And it's also unwise to fight enemies we don't need to fight. So it takes wisdom. It takes discernment. And we need to, as we pick these battles wisely, then we need to honor God in the way that we engage these battles. There should always be a spirit of humility and of gentleness and even a desire that God would change the heart of our opponents. And Paul says that. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Maybe they'll come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. See, too often in our, in our engaging of error, we accuse our enemies of being the devil. And Paul says, listen, some of our enemies have been snared by the devil. He sees them, in a certain sense, as being victims, even though he holds them accountable and corrects their errors. He says, listen, we should pray and seek that God would rescue these people from the snare that Satan has laid for them, a snare that they've been trapped by. So what's going to be the key to battling these errors? Well, Paul reminds Timothy that the key to discerning and defeating error is the truth of God's word. Look in chapter 3, verse 13. He says that people, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Isn't that a fitting description of what we see in the world and in the church today? It says, but as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned 
and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Here's Paul's point. Although some will depart from the truth, we must remain committed to the truth of Scripture. Although some people get sidetracked and sucked into pointless arguments about non-essential things, we must be workers who study the Scripture to understand the things that matter to God, to understand the things that are worth fighting over. Although people will grow increasingly less tolerant of biblical preaching and biblical truth, we must trust the truthfulness and sufficiency and power of the word and preach it and preach it. I love how Paul says, here's what the word is. And because of that, here's what we must do. Study it and preach it, even if people don't want it, even if people veer away from it. He gives us the most clear description of the doctrine of scripture, that it's inspired and that it's powerful, that it's useful. And he says, because that's the case, Timothy, study it, stick to it, stay faithful to it, proclaim it in season when it's appropriate and and popular and people want it, and out of season when the people would go, hey, you don't need to be bringing all that Bible stuff up right now. He says that's the exact time we need to bring the truth of Scripture to bear. And then finally, I wish we could spend more time on that, but the fourth point is of, of, of Paul here in this book is he holds up um, both an example and an encouragement at the end of chapter 4. We see in chapter 4 the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Paul, both of these. He holds up his own faithfulness as an example, and then he holds up God's faithfulness once again as an encouragement. In verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul's final description of himself here, he's not bragging. He's not just showing off his stats and say, hey, listen, I've been pretty good at this whole you know, serving God thing. You should be impressed with me. I think we see the heart of Paul at the end of verse 8 where he says that this award will be not only to him, but to all who have loved his appearing. He's holding out his faithfulness, his perseverance to the end, his willingness to go all the way to the finish line and even pour out his life as a drink offering. He's saying, listen, Timothy, this is the example I want you to follow. 
This is the example of faithfulness for you. We all learn from positive examples. And Paul's a good example for Timothy and us. We should value such examples and aspire to follow them and aspire to even be that kind of example for those who will follow after us. Everybody needs a mentor. Everybody needs a model, an example. Paul's done that for Timothy. And he wants Timothy to follow in his footsteps. That's an encouragement to him. Uh, At this point in his life, um, Paul's been deserted by everyone. He's in prison. His life's drawing to an end. And he tells Timothy here in just a minute that his trial, the first part of it has happened, and it's not going well. But Paul gives Timothy the ultimate source of encouragement, not just his example of faithfulness, but the perfect faithfulness of God. Verse 17 and 18. Um, Actually, let's back up just a little bit. Um, yeah, go, go all the way to verse 9. He says, do your best to come to me soon. He really wants to see Timothy. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. These two brothers, it seems, have been sent by Paul, delegated to go do some ministry. So now in verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me. For ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Paul still wants to study, even to the very end. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And look at this. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul's been deserted by his friends, he's been deserted by those who formerly served with him. Um, those that would have been an encouragement are busy because he had sent them to other places. But look at what he says in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Let me ask you, are you prepared to be faithful even if everyone else abandons you? Even family. For Paul, it was enough to say the Lord stood by me. And strengthened me. The presence of God, the faithfulness of God, was not just an intellectual truth that Paul believed. It was something that actually brought him strength in the moment. Something that that gave him what he needed to keep going, to stay encouraged and not give up. He said, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear of it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And people say, what is the lion's mouth? Does that mean he was about to be thrown in with the gladiators to be eaten by lions? Is the lion's mouth referring to Nero? Is the lion's mouth referring to maybe Satan? Um, We don't know for sure, but I, I have the sense that this is actually the enemy, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion. Because if Paul had allowed the desertion of his friends and being abandoned by all of those closest to him to totally rob him of his joy and his strength, he would have been a sitting duck dead in the water, and the enemy would have been able to render him useless for the ministry of the gospel. But he said, God strengthened me so the gospel could go forth, and that's how I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then look in verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You have to wonder if shortly after this, as Paul laid his neck down on the chopping block, if he had these words in his mind, that the Lord is about to rescue me from suffering and from sin 
from imprisonment and bring me today safely into his heavenly and then the sword drops and he's seeing Jesus face to face. The reward, the glory, the crown is his because he made it all the way to the finish line. Confident in the faithfulness of God. People will fail us. Systems in the world will be unjust. Error and falsehood will always be a threat to the truth. The world will grow increasingly hostile to the scripture, but God is faithful. Paul believed that. He wanted Timothy to believe it. He wanted us to believe it. It's in believing this truth that we can draw strength to run all the way through the tape at the finish line, to make it all the way to the harvest, to finish the fight the way that Paul did. So there's a couple questions we should ask ourselves in closing here. Let me ask you, are we going to endure as Paul did and make it to the end? Because some are going to fall away. What about you? The world's going to oppose. Those inside the church may even attack. But we must be faithful to persevere and endure. Will we guard the good deposit? Will we be faithful to preserve the truth that's been entrusted to us? Or will we compromise the gospel? Will we retreat and give up ground? Friends, we need to hold the line. That's something that's not just up to me as the pastor. That's something all of us together do as the church. Will we engage in error the right way? Satan always wants to use conflict and, and, and division to destroy the church. There's some disagreements we need to have that we need to talk through, but the way we do it has to honor God. The way we refute error, the way we correct those who are teaching or believing what is false, we need to do it the right way, engage error the right way. Let me ask, will we remain committed to Scripture? Not just in our doctrine, but in practice. Will you study it? Will you understand it so that your ability to discern truth and error will be sharpened by the constant friction of reading the Scriptures? This is something we all must be willing to do, to study it, to handle it rightly, and then to proclaim it, proclaim the truth of Scripture no matter the cost. Will you be willing to say what's true in season and out of season? And will you expect from your leaders faithful biblical preaching in season and out of season? Will you encourage those who are becoming those leaders in the next generation to preach the word in season and out of season? Will we finish the race and fight well? That's really the question that 2 Timothy proposes to us. Um, Timothy was a pastor, a young pastor in Ephesus. And he's often painted as a man who was timid and fearful and maybe kind of weak. Perhaps that's true, but as I read about all the opposition that he faced, all the suffering that was before him, the fact that his mentor and his friend Paul was in prison and about to die, his tears make sense. And to me, the fact that he needed so much encouragement perhaps speaks more to the strength of his opposition than to the weakness that he himself possessed and his personality. We tend to think of him as kind of a limp-wristed, kind of weak guy who is timid. But I really think Timothy was just out there where the fight and the battle was the hottest. Opposition, desertion, a hard task before him, um, death and imprisonment and heresy and all of these things. And if he's going to make it all the way to the end, he needs to be faithful. He needs encouragement. And I think we need that encouragement today as well. So I hope that's been an encouragement to you as it has to me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this timeless message. Apply it to our hearts. Put strength in us, Lord, through your presence and with your truth so that we might be faithful to you. Amen.